Today I want to talk about Abraham and Sarah, our spiritual father and mother. You know, we're often told that men like Ignatius and Justin Martyr and Barnabas are our spiritual fathers. And later, down through the centuries, we were told that the popes and the priests are our spiritual fathers and that the nuns are our spiritual mothers. We are told to look to them as role models and for spiritual mentorship. But our Father in Heaven had said something different. He's made it crystal clear that we're to look elsewhere for our spiritual father and mother as well as for our spiritual mentorship. We are to set our gaze upon Abraham and Sarah, which, by the way, is a game changer when you think about it. It's a game changer when it comes to reward and destiny. We see it in their life. We see it in the lives of their descendants all the way down to today. They are our spiritual father and mother. They are the parents of all true believers. And in them, in Abraham and Sarah, we see the grace of God, the blessing of God, and the gospel itself. So Abraham and Sarah, our spiritual father and mother. Let's look at Isaiah 51, verses 1 through 2. It states this, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. So uh, who's your spiritual father and mother? Is it not Sarah? Is it not Abraham? Think about this for a moment. Those who seek the good versus the evil. And you can see that all around us in the world today. You can see those who are choosing the evil and those that are choosing the good. If you're choosing the good, if you have a heart for the good, right? God says, then look back to Abraham and look to Sarah, your mother. For they are the paradigm of what it means to seek the good. Not the perfect. They weren't perfect. We're not perfect. But for those who have a heart for good, these are the role models. These are your parents. It goes on to say in Romans chapter 4 and verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? Verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited him as righteousness. Now, this is what I was sharing earlier today before communion. God justifies people based on faith, not works. To be justified is kind of a legal term, right? A courtroom term, you know, to where you're acquitted for whatever the crime is that you're being charged with. The idea of justified means to be treated just as if you didn't commit the crime. Even though you're guilty, you're acquitted, and you get to go free. It's in that setting that you're justified and treated as um, guiltless. 
your, your crime has been satisfied by law through someone else's payment for that debt that you owe. So it says here, Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. And the reason is, is Abraham wasn't perfect. Abraham himself had baggage. Abraham himself struggled with sin, often failing. Abraham didn't have to become a righteous person in order to be right before God. God said, Abraham, all you have to do is believe. And I'll give you that righteousness that your heart desires. I'll give you the good that you're pursuing. Just believe. And specifically, what was Abraham to believe in? The coming Messiah. See, the only difference between me and you, or I should say between us and Abraham, is the timeline. Abraham looked forward to the Messiah's coming. We look backwards to the Messiah who came 2,000 years ago. And by putting our faith in him, just like Abraham, God gives to us that righteousness that we so desire. It comes by faith, by believing. God straightens everything else out. That's his part. Our part, to believe. To believe in his son, the savior of the world so that we can be right with God. Not perfect, forgiven, and made right with God. Verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. And we know that, right? We all have jobs. When you get a paycheck, you know what? We, we don't thank the boss and say, well, thank you for the paycheck. Actually, we, we deserve the paycheck. We worked for the paycheck. We gave something in exchange for that paycheck, right? God's saying, you know what? You're not saved based on works. I'm actually giving it to you for free. You don't deserve it. You did not merit it. It's because I love you. You're my kids. And because I love you, I'm going to give it to you. All you have to do is believe and receive it. And it's yours because I love you, right? And this is the message that Paul gives. This is the paradigm of how Abraham became right with God. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. God doesn't, God doesn't justify the godly. The godly don't need justification. They're already godly. The point is, is no one's godly. Who does God justify? The one who believes. And who is the one that believes? The one who realizes, I'm not godly. I've got all my issues. I don't know what to do. But I trust in you. I put my faith in you and in your son. And it's to those whom God merits righteousness. It's to those that he gives the good. It's those who believe that are being saved. His faith is credited as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then verse 7. It's a quote from the uh, Old Testament, if you will. It says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered, 
Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Think about that for a moment. We're all sinners. We all make mistakes, sometimes on purpose. But I think we're all aware of the fact that we are a broken people. And King David's saying, Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. You know, sometimes when I screw up and I realize it and I humble myself and ask Don, hey, would you forgive me? I kind of really messed this up. I know I've hurt you. Would you forgive me? And then I hold my breath and I wait, sometimes for days. But when she forgives me, there's a burden lifted. It's an amazing thing that, that lifts off you when someone forgives you for your trespass against them. It's so liberating, so amazing. God says, you know what? You trust in my son, I'll forgive you. Not only will I forgive you, I will no longer take into account your sins. Because we're going to go on sinning, right? Hopefully we're going to be sinning less and less as we grow up in him. But we're still going to need forgiveness. And King David said, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord no longer takes to, into account. See, the person that doesn't believe, what hope do they have for the forgiveness of their sins? God offers it, but if you don't receive it, then you'll be held accountable for your own sin. The good news is that God loves us, and he's offering us forgiveness of sin. And I just, I, I'm just overwhelmed every day that I wake up to realize that I'm imperfect, I will sin again, but God's no longer taking that into account. I am his child. You know, my grandkids are the best. They're the reward for not killing my kids. My grandkids, they're just so amazing. I just love them so much. Now, they mess up from time to time. That doesn't change my love for them. I love them as much when they're good as when they're bad. Do you realize that when they mess up, it doesn't change their status? They're still my kids. In fact, nothing they can do will change their status. I'm good to them. You know why? Why am I good? Because they deserve it? No. I'm good to them because they're my kids. The Father loves you because you belong to Him. You're His child. He loves you. That will never change. Now, I got to rat out one of my grandkids. They're not here, are they? Are the grandkids in? Okay, I can. I don't want to embarrass them. So the oldest grandkids screaming bloody murder. And then I hear the younger one screaming bloody murder. And they both race to me to try to get there first because they know that they're in trouble. So they come running up, and I kind of get them calmed down a little bit, and I say, what's going on? And finally, the, old, the youngest one is saying something. I couldn't quite understand it, but he's making his case. <laughs> and then the older one finally says, he bit me. I said, what? And he says, yeah, he bit me. He pulled up his sleeve, showed me some teeth marks on his forearm. He says, he bit me, he bit me. So I said, look, I don't care what happened. 
what happens is irrele irrelevant, right? You cannot bite. That's the issue we're going to address. You cannot bite. And I said, now I love you. You know I love you. And that never changes. Even though you bit him, that doesn't change anything. I love you. But I'm going to give you a potch. Because you need to understand you cannot do that. And so I did. I gave him a potch. I can't tell you what a potch is because then social services is going to get worked up. And then we're going to have a, a standoff in front of my house, right? Okay. And you know I'm going to win, right? Okay. And then I'll have to ask for forgiveness because I will bite them. No, I'm joking. Okay. So, so I did that and then I hugged my little grandson. He hugged me. And you know what? He didn't bite him anymore. And he was in a biting kind of spree for a couple days. And he hasn't bitten since. He learned his lesson. Now, now, I say that because I want you to understand that God loves us. And that'll never change. And nothing we can do can change that. We're just to believe in him. He's going to help us along the way. Which, my, which means he'll give us some spankings along the way. When we're, when we're misbehaving, he will help us by giving us some discipline. Because he loves us. We do that for our own kids. On earth, certainly he'll do that as our Heavenly Father. It goes on to say, is this blessing, the love of God, the salvation that God offers, the redemption, the forgiveness, is that only on the circumcised, speaking of Jewish people, or is that also on the uncircumcised, speaking of Gentiles? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was Jewish or Gentile? Okay, so he was a Gentile originally, and then he entered into covenant with God and he became Jewish through circumcision, if you will. This is how Paul's using that at least. And so the big crux of the matter is, is does God save people based on works? Does God save people based on ethnicity? You know, your ethnic status. And for Paul, he's trying to straighten all that out, saying, no, no one merits anything. It's not based on your ethnic status. It's not based on, uh, you know, uh, the color of your skin. It's not based on your socioeconomic status. It comes by faith. And it came to Abraham before he did anything. Abraham simply believed. And because he believed in the promise of the coming Messiah, God credited that to him as righteousness. God said to Abraham, because you believe you're right with me and I'll do the rest. And that's basically what the promise was. It came by faith. The lesson for all of us is this. It doesn't matter who you are. You believe and you are redeemed. You believe and you're brought into your homecoming. If you believe Everything's going to be okay because the God who made everything seen and unseen loves, cares, and will see you through. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and to his descendants was that he would be the heir of the world. The, the, the word here we translate world is the Greek word, cosmos. It means the creation. And what God's saying is, I have a 
an amazing, amazing love for you that compelled me to make something so amazing, the cosmos itself. I'm giving it to you. You will receive it. You will lord over it, if you will. You will be its caretaker. This is what's coming in the age to come. He's going to perfect the entire cosmos, immortalize it, if you will. We're going to be raised and immortalized. And we're going to be the recipients of that incredible creation. We will journey it, discover it, shape it, love it. It's going to be amazing in every way. And that comes by faith. By faith in the Son of God. Verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all descendants, not only to those who are of the law, not only to the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. Jew and non-Jew, Jew and Gentile. If we believe, regardless of who we are, we are embraced by him as his children. So in summary, Abraham's life, you know, um, we get kind of a snapshot of it. I wish we could develop it. I hope you're reading the Torah portions. His journey is amazing. It's great stories. Uh, a lot, lot, of, lot of amazing things taking place in his life that we can relate to because we have similar journeys as Abraham. But his life is summarized for us, and I just want to kind of get down to that in Genesis 26. Sarah died much earlier. Abraham is now dead and deceased. Isaac, his son, is living in the land, the promised land, and uh, there's a huge famine taking place. And Isaac's tempted to go down to Egypt because of the poverty and the drought and the misery. And God basically says, don't go. You stay up here. I'm going to take care of you. But I want to read this because it's in this text that we have a summary of Abraham's life. It says, now there was a a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land. I will be with you. I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all of these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. I will give your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? And here's the summary. Because Abraham, he obeyed my voice, he kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. He is our father. He's our mentor. From him, we learn what? How to enter into a relationship with the living God. How do we do that? Like he did, by believing, right? By believing in the promise of the Messiah, by putting his faith in the Messiah. And he walked in God's ways. He kept his commandments. And God blessed him. And he was truly blessed in every way. Even Isaac, he says, stay here in the land during a famine. 
on the heels of a famine, right? Economic chaos. And in a drought and in a famine, Isaac sowed his seed in his field. Could you imagine his neighbors? Most had already bolted for, for each. They're probably thinking, what are you doing? You're wasting your seed. It's a drought, bro. Wake up. You know, get down to Egypt. He stayed there. The text goes on to say, and Isaac reaped a hundredfold in that year. A hundredfold. Our God is a miracle God. I'll tell you what, it doesn't matter what's going on in this world, and it's getting pretty crazy out there. Our nation's falling, falling, falling. Inflation's taking off. We got all kinds of problems in all kinds of different aspects of our society. It's all collapsing, and people are getting nervous and scared, and it's going to get a lot worse. But you know what? Our God is not limited by those circumstances. And we're going to serve Him and be blessed and rise through it all. It's amazing. So that's, that's what we learned from Abraham's life. Now let's look at Sarah, our mother. We're going to pick this up in 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read the first six verses. This is about Sarah. Remarkable woman. It says, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. Now, I'm looking at the husbands. They're like nudging their wives or staring them down. It's time to wake up, right? The husbands are awake. They're, They're with me now. They're tracking, right? In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. So that if even, I'm sorry, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they will be one without a word by your behavior, by the behavior of their wives. Submit to your husbands. Honor them. Respect them. You're not their leader. You're not called to be their leader. You're called to follow them, to respect them, to honor them. Well, my husband isn't perfect. Well, neither are you. And they're not supposed to be perfect. Only one was perfect, and you're not married to him. You submit to your husbands. You love them. You honor them. And if they're disobedient i.e. they're not perfect, right? They got their issues. Well, guess what? This is how you're going to win them. By keeping your mouth shut. That sounds way too harsh, huh? (laughs) And it's live streaming, so it's out there. All right. It is true, though. Okay, so... It says that they may be one without a word. In other words, it's not your word to them that's going to do anything. Your reproof, your correction, that's not going to move them. You need to understand the psyche of your man. What's going to move him is how you treat him, how you honor him, how you respect him, even when he doesn't deserve it. And that's going to be a game changer. That's how you influence your husband, who is, in fact, your leader. 1 Peter 3, 2 says, As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, 
That's what catches the heart of a man. It's the behavior that we're interested in. We're already rebuked and corrected all week long by those around us. The last thing we need is another reproof and another correction from our wife when we come home. My dad used to say all the time, I had this gal, she's going to take me out to eat. This, this is back in like late 70s when you didn't do these things. But this gal asked me out and she wanted to take me on a date. And her daddy was super rich and they, they, they just, they were, they were above our class, if you will. So I said, yeah, she's going to come pick me up and her dad's Lincoln Continental Mark IV, I think it was, you know, back in the day. I don't, I don't know if they make those today, but anyway. She's taking me out to a fancy restaurant. My dad's saying, what? What are you talking about? You know, women don't do that. You, you need to take the lead. You need to ask. I said, hey, I'm not even interested. She's interested in me. It's a free meal, Dad. <laughs> he says, well, I want to meet her. He says, you, you tell her that when she comes to pick you up, she needs to come up, and I want to meet her. So I, you, I told her, I said, my dad wants to meet you. I know, that's kind of backwards. Today, it's okay. But back then, that was, you, don't, you don't do that. So anyway, she's uh, on her way to pick me up. My dad is sitting there in his big green robe from Ireland. It was kind of a shag robe. It was the, it was, ah. He's wearing this big hairy green robe, right? No shoes or socks, hairy legs, his chest hairs poking out everywhere. So I'm thinking, all right, dad, you know, may want to get up and move to the room and, you know, Looked presentable, but back in those days, you didn't tell your dad what to do. So I waited, waited. I said, Dad, she's on her way. She, you know, He says, what is up? I said, Dad, just go put some clothes on. He says, I have clothes on. I said, it's a robe. It's a robe, Dad. I said, your hairy legs, everything. I said, please. I said, just put some clothes on. He said, son, when I'm in this house, I am a king, and my home is my palace, and if the king wants to wear a robe in his palace, he's going to wear a robe in his palace. He says, you just tell her to come up here because I want to meet her, and I'm telling you, she came up to the house. My dad stood there in his green robe talking to her. She was shocked. It was like, you know, I'm thinking, do I tell her he's a king? I don't know if that's going to help. I don't know if that'll help her or not, but... Oh my gosh, anyway. I have no idea why I even told that story, but. Okay, I do. I, I remember now. I remember now. Men, generally speaking, all right? Generally speaking. We want, to be we, we want to be treated with honor and respect. We don't want to be loved. You know, to the wives here, uh, you're, you're, you're not your husband's mother, you're his wife. We don't want to be mothered. We don't want to be loved. We want to be honored and respected as kings in our palaces. That's what we want. That's why I told the story. Okay. Your adornment must not be merely external. Slide 43. 
the braiding of the hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. It says that should not be your only apparel. Some of you do need to work on that. Okay, It doesn't mean neglect that. It just means add to that. Just thought I'd throw that out there. The shoe fits, wear it, Cinderella, right? All right, all right. In addition to that, also, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Yelling, screaming, commanding, that does not move the heart of a husband. In fact, it turns it off. Appeal in a respectful and honorable way with a life-giving spirit, and he'll lay his life down for you. Verse 5, For in this way in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Verse 6, Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. Now, I know that men are learning how to love their wives and be understanding and be compassionate leaders. And I know women are really working on being submissive to their husbands and learning to honor them and respect them. But we have a ways to go, don't we? I mean, just every head bowed, every eye closed. The wives here, how many... How many here call your husband Lord in his hearing? Okay, we're working on it. I'll wait a little bit longer. Okay, let's move on. All right. So, now I say that kind of jokingly, but I do want to say our job as men is to learn to lead with compassion and with sensitivity and understanding our wives and our children. We are called to be the Abrahams the leaders of our homes. And wives are called to submit and follow and encourage us because the journey is the same one for both of us. So we have our work to do with each other. I remember uh, uh, Don and I were, that destroyed our marriage, man. It was over, over, over. I'm alienated, living in my parents' basement. And back then you weren't supposed to do that. I guess today it's in vogue. Okay, but back then, not supposed to do that. So I'm living in my parents' basement. My marriage is over. My ministry is over. Things are really bad. I'm clinically depressed. They want me to take Prozac. I won't take it because I was reading People magazine in the foyer of the doctor's office after being diagnosed, and they're wanting to put me on Prozac. And that article in People magazine about that, that kid about my age back then, who was on Prozac, flipped out, got a gun, shot all the kids in the neighborhood. And he says, but it only happens in about one in 200 million. And I'm thinking I'm the second one. I just know it's me. I cannot take this. I go home, I'm living in my parents' basement. My mom says, you have to take your medication. I said, mom, I can't take it. She says, no, you have to take your medication. I said, I'm not going to take it, mom. I'm not going to take it, all right? Don't even ask. Well, you can't stay here unless you take it. I said, mom, read the magazine. I didn't have to take it. I think she was worried about the kids in the neighborhood. 
Anyway, long story short, trying to put my marriage together and pastors helping me and community and and so I'm trying to tell the pastor what my wife needs to do to make this marriage work. And he finally told me, he says, Mark, listen, you're not getting it. The marriage is a mess because you got the wrong perspective. If you want your marriage to work, forget about Don. Quit telling her what she needs to do. Quit pointing out her shortcomings. I understand why she doesn't want to be with you. If you want your marriage to work, you work on yourself. All those passages about what it means to be a husband and a spiritual leader, you work on that. You become that. You do that. And she'll follow you to the ends of the world. The light bulb went on. I realized for the first time I made a major shift in my life, in my marriage. And I began to become the man that God called me to be. And it turned her heart towards me once again. And the marriage came together and it's been... Amazing ever since. Not without problems, but a whole and a meaningful and a real marriage. All right, so I'm out of time. I was going to talk about Jezebel being the antithesis, Ahab and Jezebel, the antithesis of an Abraham and a Sarah. And if we can understand all those roles, then we'll know which one to choose. Part two, it might be part two. That's right. It's a great story. So maybe I'll pick that up next week. So in closing, I want to encourage everyone to read the story of Abraham and Sarah, Genesis chapter 12 up to about chapter 26. Read the story of their lives, their challenges, their crisis, God's goodness, God's grace, and just open your hearts. Like Abraham and Sarah, Believe in the Messiah. Put your trust in him. Ask him to take you from the realm of brokenness to the realm of wholeness. He loves you. He loves you. Maybe you already believe, but you're far from him. You don't have to do anything. Just turn around. Open your heart and your arms and re-embrace him. You're his child. He's not going to turn you away. He never will. He loves you with an eternal love. So come to your homecoming. Be one with him again. Find your joy in him again. That's it. Shabbat shalom.